everyone. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. We hope that you find encouragement today as you listen. I had a great time uh, this weekend uh, watching a documentary. I love history. I love documentaries. And uh, any Bob Dylan fans here? Anybody? Yeah. Oh, wow. 70% of the, of the audience said, Bob who? <laughs> But those of us who are a little more aged or learned, we know of the great storyteller, lyricist, songwriter, some would say activist from the 60s, uh, although he didn't like that. Uh, and that's what this uh, documentary was saying. They, they, he, he was a part of the, um, the folk song genre around the turn of the 60s. He's an 18, 19-year-old guy, and he's just a poet, and he writes these songs um, you know, when you, when you Google Bob Dylan, they'll say, like, top 100 songs. I mean, he, he wrote a lot of songs. But he was an author, and he's a main figure in popular culture for not just a decade, you know, but for, like, 50 years, five decades. And uh, he be, when he, I said he began his, his, his music career in the civil rights, during that civil rights movement, and he would show up at civil rights marches and campaigns, and he just had his little guitar and his harmonica, and he would sing, and and some would say, you call that singing? But his words were amazing. And uh, uh, crowds would get so large. In fact, I was watching in this documentary, he'd just done this folk concert, some kind of a gathering, and he'd done one of these songs. And it, it so moved the audience that when he left, it's like the crowds swelled so great that, uh, that the, he's in a station wagon. They had their amplifiers. You know, this is like 1964 or five or something. And he, he, he's got their, their amplifiers in the back of the station wagon. And, the, you know, there's three, a couple band members because he didn't have much of a band. And they're trying to take their station wagon out. And it, it's, the crowd has just pressed them that they can't even hardly go a mile an hour. And then one of the backup singers, she's talking about the blanket that was covering the amplifiers. And it turned out to be two young girls who'd somehow stowed away inside. So they had to stop and gently, you know, work through the crowd, open up the back of the station wagon and get the, the young ladies out and then continue to go. Large crowds often follow uh, popular people, right? Now, this morning, we're talking about Jesus as always as we continue to uh, journey through the gospel of John. And he is at a point in his ministry where large crowds are gathering. We're in John chapter 6, if you want to turn there. And let me tell you something. It's not because he wrote, like a rolling stone, or like a rolling stone, something like that. But rather, that's how Bob Dylan sings, all right? <laughs> it may be the devil. It may be the Lord. But you got to serve somebody. I'm not, I, I have better days with my Bob Dylan, okay? But, uh, okay, so, but he may not have written a song, but he did roll a stone, and he was the stone, he's the rock upon which our faith is established. And I want, I want you to see something that's kind of interesting here in the first uh, verse of, of, of chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now pause. I think the Sea of Galilee is like 14 miles long and like 7 miles wide at its widest point. And this is saying that he crossed from the would be considered the west side, where they're kind of located, over to kind of a remote region on the east side. And so it could have been a six or seven mile boat trip, okay? So he crossed and, 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 and still a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside, sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival 
was near. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask that you would be with us this morning and speak through your word. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you take this word, uh, this written word that we look to, we memorize, that we study, that we uh, meditate on, and you can bring it to life. And we ask this morning, Spirit of God, that you'd bring your word to life to us and that you'd uh, meet with us even as we conclude at your table this morning. Jesus, in your name, we pray. Amen. Look at that first highlight that I put up there. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed uh, uh, to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, many Bible scholars believe that that sometime was literally a year. Uh, so there's like a, a year of ministry from our last John, uh, Gospel of John uh, narrative. And I think that was the, the pool of Bethesda. We looked a little bit at the response and the Sabbath and breaking the Sabbath last week. Uh, and Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. We understood that to be so. And he and the Father don't rest. They're continuing to work even though the Jewish people stopped and they were creating all these things they couldn't do on the Sabbath. And now here we are, and it's believed that a, a full year has passed, and not just a year that has passed, but he was in Jerusalem, which is like the county of, Jeru of, of Judea here, or the region of, uh, we'd have, I don't know how we'd compare it, but it's, it was a distance and it was its own region, Judea. Now he's back in the region of the Galilee and a year has passed and the majority or the gist of, of his amazing Galilean ministry, if you read the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll discover all that Jesus was doing in the Galilee uh, and much of it has happened in this year that had passed, in this sometime that has passed, covered an entire year the heart of his Galilean ministry. This large crowd followed because of the signs, because of the miracles, because of the healings, okay? Absolutely, if you, know, you think your favorite uh, rock star or, or actress or actor or whoever draws crowds in our popular culture is amazing, imagine a man coming along and doing supernatural works. In Jerusalem, he, he healed a man who was lame for 38 years. And since that time, there's been probably daily encounters where, where those who were demonized, the demons were set to flight. Those who were sick unto death, eyes were opened, uh, bodies were raised, and just this, these miracle and miraculous things that are occurring. And so the crowds would gather even when he tried to run away from them. And uh, by the way, if you're counting the signs, because when you look at the Gospel of John, it is so different and so unique and such a beautiful addendum to the, 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 the three Gospels, the synoptic Gospels that kind of see the same. Uh, the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John uh, lists seven signs, right? We've talked about this earlier as we begin this journey through John. Seven signs. Actually, there's an eighth one after the resurrection of Jesus when he has breakfast with his disciples, but we're not counting that one, okay? And the seven signs, we've already seen three of them. Do you remember which one they are? Water into wine. The healing of the, of, the, uh, the, of the magistrate's son, the, the official son at Cana. Again, two, two miracles at Cana that don't show up in the other Gospels. And then we had the Pool of Bethesda. And now this morning, we have uh, not just one, but two more of the seven signs or miracles that pointed towards Jesus' uh, deity, towards his miraculous power, pointed towards God's heart for humanity, and uh, so, uh, and one other note, and I, I just, I highlighted up there because the other Gospels, by the way, this, uh, this passage in John, the, the feeding of the, of the 5,000 
and his miraculous walking on the water amidst a storm are the only, they're the only place in the gospel until we get to the Passion Week, the week of crucifixion, that John actually aligns with the other three gospels. So this morning, you can find these stories in two or three of the other gospels, depending on which, uh, which sign we're looking at, okay? So just a note, if you're if that interests you, I think it's kind of amazing how John brings so much color and life to the whole uh, gospel narrative, all four gospels, by adding kind of in between the spaces we see and discover some things he, he reveals, okay? So, but look at this. I think that's interesting. The other gospels don't mention this, but John does. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Now, he lists three times that the, uh, uh, and, and he draws uh, focus on the Passover three times, and that was... Uh, the first time in chapter 2 when he, Jesus went into the temple on Passover, so it would have been at least a year earlier, all right, uh, and, and he cleared the temples. Now we fast forward at least a year, and it's around Passover time. He's a few miles from Jerusalem where they celebrate the Passover. He's up in the wilderness in Galilee feeding a, a large group. In fact, I've, I've called this a table for many, this first point. But look at it, just to break down Passover in case you're not aware of this. The Passover was one of the three pilgrim feasts which Jewish males were expected to attend. The others were uh, Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles, and Passover was the Jewish festival commemorating the deliverance of the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. Remember, the angel of death spared the firstborn sons of, of the Hebrews by passing over those households which sacrificed a lamb and placed its blood on the door frames, and it was celebrated on the 15th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar, okay, it's the equivalent of our March and April in between there. That's why oftentimes when we celebrate Easter, it sometimes aligns very closely with Passover, but not always because we're on a different calendar in our system, and, and, but, uh, but sometimes it almost aligns. And in that, first, in that first century when Christ went to the cross, it aligned perfectly as we will see towards the end of the book and as we understand every year when we go back at Easter time to celebrate Christ's beautiful uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and brutal crucifixion, but beautiful in what it's done for us, correct? So uh, this morning, I want you to see this, not, not just two more signs, but also wonder, okay? A little wordplay this morning, signs and wonders, but I want to talk about signs and wonder this morning. And the first sign that we see is that a table for many. I, I get a kick out of uh, the, the church that the youth are going to this, this, uh, this weekend, uh, it used to be called uh, First Assembly. Now I think they call it uh, City Church or Church for the City, City First. It's some... City First. Anyway, it's, it's a church that really is focusing on their city, right? And so, uh, but at one time you'd walk in there and they'd have, and they maybe still do kind of a, a statement on their wall a table for 5,000 because they built multiple times in their last auditorium, literally sat 5,000 people. Now, I think they've arranged it and kind of moder modified it so it maybe doesn't quite seat that many. But man, I mean, Rockford, Illinois is like half the size of Madison, and they've got this, they've got this church that seats 5,000 people, and they've had beautiful ministry over the years that, that we've been blessed to be a part of uh, some of what they do for our women, our men, our our, our young adults and our youth ministry. So uh, I just thought of that this morning because Jesus is setting a table this morning as we look in this gospel for a table of 5,000, actually more than that. It said, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, 
where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, they're in the wilderness, so there's nothing close by. He asked this, this, this only to test him, for he already had a plan. He already had in mind what he's going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to just have a little bite, just a little nibble. So, uh, and incidentally, one of the other gospels brings this out. Uh, John mentions men gathering, but there would have been children and, and wives and children as well. So it could have been, that number could have been inflated up to, uh, you know, 6,000, 7,000, who knows? But it, it, it was probably more than 5,000 for sure. And that's a big number because when you realize that the town's probably closest to that, maybe only maxed out at 2,000 or 3,000. So you think your favorite star has draw power. How about Jesus coming and literally emptying out towns and villages where it's like everybody shows up, and that's probably what's going on in this case. He was popular. Can you imagine Philip, though? I mean, maybe you can put yourself in the place of some of these characters this morning in this narrative and it is a very long passage, and we're going to just skip through it and try to grab some of the highlights. But here's Philip, one of the disciples, and, and he's asking that question, you know, uh, it would take more, or he's making that statement, it would take more than a year's wages or half a year's wages just to, just to get some crumbs for these people. And this is Philip, who's been with Jesus since the beginning. So he's been at Cana. He's been at Cana twice for supernatural events. He has been at the pool of Bethesda. He has been... Uh, in between all these miracles that are recorded in the other Gospels, and he's going, hey, Jesus, come on. How are we going to do this? Don't you just want to say, really? But oftentimes we can relate to, uh, there's that one statement, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Uh, because in our humanity, a mountain is a mountain. Even though we've seen the Lord move mountains, we see a new mountain and we go, how is this going to get taken care of? And that, I think, was Philip's challenge there. And here's... Here's what uh, Andrew said. Uh, another of his disciples, this is Peter's brother, Andrew, he spoke up, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? And so he's got a little, little question going on. But I love Andrew because I think we can speculate that maybe while the other disciples were getting, uh, trying to get close to Jesus or stay Tight, because there was always the periphery of people following Jesus, not just the 12 disciples. But you'll find even, we won't touch on it this morning, but even at the end of this passage, there are those who leave Jesus because of the, the strength of the message, and the 12 didn't leave, but there's always were those who would, were following him and believing in him, and some who gave up at some point. But uh, I, I think it's interesting. Andrew is the one who's, uh, is, seems like he's always kind of rubbing elbows with the, the, the periphery, the other people. Uh, it was Andrew that brought his brother Jesus, uh, Peter to see Jesus. It's Andrew who brings this little boy with his five barley cakes or loaves and, and his couple of fish. And, uh, and he's, I just kind of see him as this guy, you know, when the rest of us, kind of like the Mary Martha uh, scenario, <coughs> which we'll see later, uh, is, you know, when, when, when Jesus is ministering, Mary's at his feet and Martha's working, it, it almost seems like uh, uh, the other disciples are maybe close to his feet, and, and, and Andrew is just kind of out there connecting with the population. Nah, it's maybe a stretch, but I kind of like to see him that way. In fact, later on, I think it's in the 12th chapter of John, there's some Greeks that come, and they would be Gentiles, and they want to meet Jesus, and Philip learns about it. They come to Philip first, and who does Philip take him to? Andrew, because Andrew is really good at bringing people to Jesus. But in order to bring people to Jesus, you've got to be with the people. And uh, I love Andrew. He's my, he's my rock star. 
I want to be more like Andrew, at least what I think Andrew is. Uh, so uh, you can see here, though, that Andrew's doing this, and, uh, but he had doubts. And, and then Jesus begins to nourish this crowd. And the other gospels reveal that Jesus is moved with compassion, and that's why he nourishes them. Let's pause for a minute. It's not like they couldn't last a meal as they walked. Have you ever had to skip a meal? Have you ever had to skip two meals? Did, did you do, anybody skip two meals in your life? And you're here, to, you're here to testify of it. We survive two meals normally. Some of us fast for days and some go on weeks fast. We can survive, you know, you need some water probably. They probably had access to water. But I think Jesus' compassion wasn't because they were going to all starve to death on their way home. He just loved people. And he loves us. And he, he loves the condition of humanity. And, and there's even something that seems deeper going on here in, in John's testimony of this feeding of the 5,000, which we'll see. Uh, but uh, the other gospels reveal that compassion. Now look at here in verses six and 10, or through 10, it says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. The other gospels say they did them in 50s and groups of 100. So imagine the hillside, all right? There's plenty of grass in that place. They sat down on the ground. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, look at that, and he gave thanks. And he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. Now, and they were all fed, by the way. Uh, spoiler alert, we're not going to read it, but you've seen it, you can read it. it supernaturally. Now there are some people that go, well, maybe what Jesus is really doing is he was, he was encouraging others who had their loaves, their loaves and their fish uh, to, to, to share it with others. And what the message really is, we need to share to be good Christians. Well, that's absolutely right. But I don't believe that for a second. I believe when, when heaven opens up, all right, I gave this illustration a couple weeks ago. I keep going back to it. Jacob's ladder and the case in the Old Testament where Jacob had this dream of heaven opening up and literally the angels of heaven coming down and going up and then the Son of Man spoke to him. Jesus incarnate, he spoke to him and, and that encounter. And this is what Jesus is giving us throughout John, these moments where heaven opens up and this is a sign that is extra earthly. It's, it's, it, 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 trans, it, it transcends anything that we see in the natural realm. It's a supernatural encounter. So I mean, I'm, I'm not... I'm not criticized. Maybe I am, those who don't believe in, in these stories in the gospel. But I believe Jesus is big enough, and I believe God is big enough to literally come on the scene and do these demonstrative things. And this is one of those cases where he's feeding a multitude of people, and there's a whole lot left over after. That's amazing what Jesus can do with what little we have to offer. Think of that. Five barley cakes Two fish, and they weren't really the big fish, you know. Some of you guys, you fish, and, you know, I've seen your fish there, this big. And they probably could feed 5,000. But if we really get a look at they're really about this big. And these guys, that boy probably would have said, that this big, this fish were probably like this big, okay? And Jesus supernaturally brought nourishment. And it's, I think it's an amazing picture and a, just a, 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 an observation and a sense of encouragement to us today. What Jesus can do with what little we have to offer. Because this little boy brought it forward, what he had in his hands is what he gave to the Lord, and when we take what we have and we offer what we have in our hands to the, to the Lord's service, to the one that we love, the one who loved us first, Jesus Christ, look out, 
He can do amazing things. And if I were to poll you individually, we could go through probably story after story, testimony of what God has done in and through our lives, through what little we had to offer. And uh, I love that, that truth that just jumps from the pages here of this, this beautiful gospel. In, uh, in John, in, 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 the, in the verse 14, the next verse, or two verses later, it says, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Now, what were they talking about? If you were to look in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, here's what it says. I, I wrote it down. I didn't put it on the overhead. It says, the Lord your God, and this is Moses, this is early Israel being led by Moses, and uh, it said, uh, your God will raise up, for the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. This is Moses speaking. Moses was the big guy. I mean, he's the prophet of all prophets. And, and Moses is saying, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And they're asking this question because they've just seen him feed thousands of people. And they've seen this miraculous. Plus, they're following him because of, they've heard of these miracles or they've witnessed some of the miracles he's done. Maybe they heard about Cana. Maybe they heard about the, the ruler's son. Maybe, the, maybe the, the, the news has trickled out of Jerusalem up to the north in the Galilee about this man who had been lame for 38 years. His reputation preceded him, and they're saying, you must be the prophet, and this prophet is someone they longed for. It's been a, a couple thousand years, and they've been waiting for this prophet, and I suppose the folklore and you know, the legend has grown. He's going to be big, not just a prophet, but they attach to him uh, the, the, a, a rulership and a messianic title, which basically meant a kingly role. And so they are really pumped, and they're saying, you must be that person. And uh, Israel was longing, and they're waiting for another super prophet, just like Moses. This kingly figure was going to he's going to restore greatness to Israel as, as a nation and restore its place in, in, in the world. They were just looking for what you and I probably would look for if we had experienced uh, decades and, and centuries of oppression from outside rulership who oppressed us, all right? That's what they were looking for, a political leader, one that was, was, was even supernatural in his messianic calling, uh, in his kingly role to restore greatness and freedom to their nation. Isn't that what Moses, isn't that what Moses is all about? Moses keeps showing up here in these last, if you're, if you're noticing. Circle Moses every time you see in, 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 this, in this early part of the Gospel of John. They're looking to Moses. Moses is the lawgiver through, through God. Moses is the one that they look to as the prophet, the great one. And it's even here as Jesus starts this, this narrative and this story of feeding the 5,000, he says, uh, it was about Passover time. I think John is wanting us to see uh, kind, of a, kind of a connection to promises and to greatness of the past, but a, a new unveiling of the greatness of the present and the future through his life and through his ministry that was now and yet to come. The Passover, it was involved the Exodus, right? It involved, uh, as I showed you, the lamb and the, and the bread. The bread was... It was like, okay, no time to even add yeast to the bread. Folks, this is going to happen so quick. The blood's going to be over the door. <laughs> Pharaoh is going to say, get out of here. You know, Moses had been saying, let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. And, and, and Pharaoh's going to go, get out of here. 
because the final plague was the ultimate plague. And you're not going to have time to put yeast. You're not going to have time for your sweet rolls to rise or your, or your wheat bread to rise. I mean, just take the bread without leaven. And so the Passover was that day of recognizing what God did and then seven days of eating unleavened bread to remember as they exited Egypt and, and probably came to their place of the next miracle, and that would have been the Red Sea. So to, to think of Passover as a first century or even a modern day uh, follower of, 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 of Judaism would understand that Exodus was lamb, it was bread, it was wilderness manna provision. Manna provision. Bread supernaturally provided for hundreds and thousands and millions or a whole lot of Israelites leaving, leaving uh, Egypt. And here's Jesus' response, because this is what they want. They want the prophet. They want the prophet who, like Moses, they already see him doing Moses-like things. And Jesus' response is, uh, and understanding their intentions to try to make him king by force, he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The other gospels say he went to pray, which is a great, a great note here. When you get pressed, when things get out of control, find a place to pray. That's what Jesus did. Find a mountain, find a closet, go somewhere. This, if the Son of God, if God the Son, if Jesus Christ can do it, just follow him in, in, the, uh, in the challenges that you have and the presses you have and the difficulties that you experience in your life, okay? Uh, so uh, this is Jesus' response. And so he goes away. Uh, we find that he commands the disciples to get in the boat and to leave from the far east remote area of the Galilee there, the eastern shore, take the long ship uh, roll back across the lake to uh, the region of um, uh, where their outpost is. And I think it's the Gesenerate is where they, they, po they, they landed and such, but kind of they're, they're just heading home essentially is where they were based. And so here's, what you, here's what's interesting is this, the second, uh, the second of our signs this morning, which is actually the fifth sign that John gives us in his gospel is, is found right here, all right? And so we'll just call it the raging storm, all right? A strong wind was blowing. Now, the disciples got in. They headed out after this great feeding. It was probably dusk, evening, and it's a long, we're talking five, six, seven miles, maybe across, depending on where they started, where they're heading. It's a long voyage, and uh, we talked about it once before, that the, the, the hills are so high on that eastern side of the lake, if you ever go there today, and when the winds come down, it creates like its own storm system over that lake, and uh, they call it the Sea of Galilee. It's a very large lake, and I imagine waves can get very, very high. So it would almost be like being at sea in a storm, and they're amidst a storm, and they're going, and then it says this, with strong wind blowing, um, and the waters grew rough, and when they had rowed about three miles or four miles, John's in the boat taking notes. He's kind of measuring, I suppose, and, and they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat. Immediately, the boat reached the other shore where they're heading. So maybe they were close. I mean, they've been sailing all night, beating. It's like, Jesus, why weren't you here sooner? That would be my first thing if they were that close. Or maybe it was supernatural. The other gospels say that the, the storm just stopped. It just subsided. And uh, now you have Jesus in the boat. That, that can happen, right? And storms, let me just tell you this. Just to take a note. <laughs> this is very applicable. This is good for all. Storms are inevitable. Storms will happen. Uh, in this world, Jesus said, you're going to have troubles, you're going to have tribulations, and uh, troubles and tribulations usually uh, equal storms. It's a given. 
It's, uh, it's a no-brainer. Uh, you're going to have storms come into your life. They come for different reasons. Remember Jonah in the Old Testament? He disobeyed God, and he encountered a storm. He went overboard, and he had some fish time. And, uh, and, and it was a corrective storm. Uh, listen, uh, if, if, and there is times our sin can bring storms into our lives. You know, when I was a little guy, I, I, I was way too old to know better, but I was younger, and I, I, I liked to throw things, uh, and I'll, I'll confess it wasn't good. When the snow falls, we'd go out for fun and throw snowballs at cars. If you hit a teenager, they'd chase you for an hour, and your adrenaline's jacked up, and you're, I'd never do this again. And then the next Friday night, you go out with your buddies, and you do it again. It's the dumbest thing. Don't ever do that. It scares the bejeebies out of people. But, you know, we're in Minnesota. There's nothing Minnesotans do in the winter at night but, you know, strange things. And that was one of the strange things I did as a Minnesotan, okay? And uh, another thing was is I always like to throw, and I don't know even why I did this, what possessed me, probably a bad spirit, but I took an egg, and I was trying to see if I could throw it all the way across the street, like a block here, from door to door, and hit my neighbor's house. <laughs> and it was so cool because the first one hit. So I, said, I wonder if I could do that again. Well, that was the problem because the owner of the house heard the first one. I didn't know it. And the second one, man, it, it just hit dead on, you know. And I walked away and go, that was kind of cool. How dumb. I mean, that's just dumb. Well, my dad gets a call later that night. They tell you something, a storm was coming. But it wasn't kind of like this act of nature where, hey, you know, I'm an innocent. I was guilty of sin. And I just, I'll never forget, we were having some kind of a lock-in at our church. I'll never forget, we're in Minneapolis. My dad's pastoring this church kind of in the, uh, in the city, the deeper part of the city, and we're having this lock-in, and Pastor Roger Olson is up with the youth group from Bethesda Church. That was Bethesda back then. And I'll never forget it, not because it was some kind of an encounter with the youth that weekend, but because dad learned about it while I was at that thing, and he came and he let me know that he knew about it. And then he just said, and we'll take care of it in a little bit. Oh, my goodness, the storm. I mean, there was more storm waiting for the storm than the storm actually was. Because my dad believed in corporal punishment. All right, that means he'd use a belt if he needed to. Now, don't report him. He's too old. He does, you know, you're not, he's, you know, you know, it worked pretty well on me and my brothers. Uh, I was never guilty, except in this is the only time I was guilty that I needed it. Um, <laughs> But actually, it wasn't that case. I think, he, I think, you know, I was old enough where he, he didn't use that type of discipline. He had me go over, knock on the door of the neighbor, and, and sincerely tell him how sorry I was. Man, you talk about eating crow. That was, I, first of all, all he had to say is, I don't believe you. If so, why did you do it? And I didn't have an answer for that. So I knew I was more remorseful than really maybe repentive. I don't, but... The point is, I went, and I never forget talking to him, and, 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 uh, and then I took the soap and water, and I spent probably an hour cleaning up, because it was winter, kind of cold, it was late fall, and it kind of froze a little bit, I think, and I, I warm water, and I scrubbed his house. Man, was that, in, was that humiliating? Yes. Uh, but, but for some reason, the, you know, that storm of discipline felt better than others, and it, uh, but yet it... Uh, it was very memorable to me. I was never going to do it again anyway. I think I learned my lesson when he realized I had done it, and it was really, really a dumb thing to do. But you know what? When you're an adolescent male, um, I won't say anymore. Okay, you can just fill in the blank. I always tell my daughters, you know, wait, 
wait for your, your guys to hit at least 25. It takes a man at least that long to grow up. And uh, at least it did for me. And you just kind of get rid of some of the fuzz and some of the chemical issues. And you just, you know, all right, uh, you, you become adults a little bit. Our, our women grow so quickly and they mature so quickly, right? So uh, that was a storm in my life. And that was a, that, I earned that one, all right? But, uh, and, and if you slander at the job or if you backbite or gossip your co-workers, there's a good chance that a storm will catch up to you. But sometimes the storms are instances where there's an, a spiritual outright effort attacking your life and it literally you're doing the right thing and there's a barrier and there's a storm and uh, it can come in the form of persecution in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12 it says all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted boy how do you like that for a promise right you always like to grab your promise, you know, God is for me, not against me. He, he's, he's my rock. He's my, you know, read, you know, take that one to the bank sometimes. It's given. You're going to experience persecution if you live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And, you know, sometimes, I'll go one step further. Sometimes storms are just the outright result of a fallen world that we live in. Remember how they're trying to figure out who sinned in the case of the one sick person or the blind person. She says, neither one of these had a result of his sin or his parents sinning or anything. It's just God's going to be glorified in this. And we just live in a fallen world where people are born blind, not because somebody sinned or, or we get a sickness or, or things fail or tornadoes strike or hurricanes strike. And it's like it's, it's has, that storm had nothing to do with somebody's sin necessarily, although we all sin, but just the fact that we live in a world that's, that's broken for now. All right, uh, so uh, uh, storms are, are bad news, but the good news is who's walking in our storm, and that's what we take from this, this uh, group of scriptures here, this part of this narrative. When, when we repent and we call on Jesus, if we need to repent, he enters our storm, he brings us peace, right? He, he, uh, he, 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 just, he brings wholeness to our lives. He, in many cases, uh, but not always, we, we don't even recognize it, but he's right there with us, right? So, I mean, because you see the scripture where he doesn't leave or forsake us. So we're looking for him in the storm, but the fact is he's with us in the storm. He's probably waiting for us to align our hearts with him and say, Lord, I'm really desperate. Would you come and would you make yourself known? Would you help bring peace to this situation? But I think theologically I wrestle with the idea of him entering our storm because I think he's just with us all the time as we follow him. Now, you may go some places where you get ahead of him and you need to wait for him. And, and that's that, you know, maybe that's that dark side. Uh, uh, but uh, storms are, are, are bad news, except in the reality that, uh, that, that, that God can use them. And the good news is Jesus is there in the midst of those storms. So uh, Jesus, the word of God, he walked on water through the storm. And I think keeping with this whole Passover theme, John kind of starts this by saying, and it was Passover time. And so now you have the feeding of a multitude in a wilderness. Do you see that? Kind of the part of the Passover talks about manna from heaven. And then you have a, a water. You come to the Red Sea in the Old Testament, and they can't get through that. And God supernaturally makes a way. And they're at a place maybe close to destruction on this. Lake. And Jesus, the Son of God, comes out. He overcomes the water, doesn't walk through it, but walks on top of it and then speaks to that external condition and, and speaks peace to the, the whole situation. So you can kind of see the, the uh, parallels there. And I just, I want to conclude this morning with, uh, with the area of wonder. Wonder. Um, I, I, I say that because it's, uh, it's kind of a play on words, but I just, 
there's inquisitiveness taking place in the crowds. In fact, what happens is the crowd, you can see here, once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, now they're on the other side of the lake where they'd fed the 5,000 or more, they got into their boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Okay, so you go, what's so big about this? Well, they were wondering, they're inquisitive, they were curious because they saw him go up in the mountains and they saw the, they probably watched that boat go quite a distance. Don't you imagine it took a while for the crowd, took a while for the crowd to kind of disperse and they're watching and the, and, and the boat gets, you know, 100 yards, 300 yards, five, a mile offshore and you can see the storms are kind of picking up and they go, well, Jesus is up in the mountains and there's no way you walk from there, the east side, around the top of the lake, you know, to, to Capernaum uh, in, in, in a day or a night. It, it would take probably a couple of days for sure. And so they're surprised. They realize that, uh, that uh, the boats, that there's only one boat. Jesus couldn't have taken another boat. And uh, where did Jesus go? Was their first question. And, and, uh, 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 and, and, and so they followed the disciples across the lake. And when they found Jesus on the other side, they're trying to wonder what's going on. They were wondering and having questions. How, how could he be praying in the hills and across the lake at the same time? He couldn't have walked around the lake, like I said. And was this another miracle? So they're, they're wondering all this. And then they ask the question, you know, Rabbi, when did you get here? Here's Jesus' response. He says, uh, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill now, I think in the Greek, what that had your fill means that they kind of gorge themselves and they probably like the cuisine. So now I'm not sure they're chasing signs. Jesus is saying, you're not necessarily looking at signs right now. You're looking at, uh, you're just chasing, you're chasing a fulfillment and some kind of a physical fulfillment. And that's a pretty strong desire. Water and food, you know, bread and water is, is pretty strong in the human condition. And uh, they wondered what, you know, what, what, and, and, and their question then, and look at this, his answer, uh, he gives it, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of God will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed a seal of approval. But look at that, do not work for food that spoils. And their response is, hey, what must we do uh, to do the works of God? And they, they were asking this question. They're wondering, what's, what's going on here? There's a bigger thing happening here. And, and they're asking more questions. And then, uh, and then Jesus' response in verse 29 the work of God is that to believe in the one who he, who he has sent. So it's, I just think this is beautiful. It's not what we do or how we do it or how we work, but it's like it's believing in, and he's going to say it here in a minute, what's come from heaven. To believe what's come from heaven and, uh, and, and, and not to try to work and do works and try to, you know, try to add all these things to your faith, but to place your faith in the one that God has sent. It's not in the in the works, but the gift of Jesus. And the crowd asked another, for another sign for them to believe, if you'd keep reading it. And what will you do, they asked. Our ancestors had manna in the wilderness. So give us another sign. They just had the feeding of the 5,000 and all these miracles that are uh, proceeding and, and, and that, that go before his reputation. And, uh, uh, and our ancestors ate this manna. Uh, and he said, sure, he multiplied the loaves and fishes, but what about the manna miracle? They're asking you know, you just took bread that was already there, but God, he provided it supernaturally. Why don't you, you know, come on, can you, 
do that, and that's where Jesus really drives the point home that I want to conclude with. I invite the worship team to come up here as well. Jesus uh, said, uh, manna uh, doesn't come close to the bread of heaven that gives life to the world. You're looking back to this ancient miracle, and I'm telling you, that manna doesn't even come close to what you're seeing right here. We're talking about, um, uh, we're talking about bread that comes from heaven, the bread of heaven that gives life to the world. Of course, the crowd, like the woman at the well, give me that water so I thirst no more. Give me that bread so that I'm no, we're no longer hungry. They're, they're not seeing it for what it's worth. They're not understanding that heaven is speaking right now, that heaven is opening up and speaking to the hearts of humanity in this place. And then Jesus declares this. Here it is. Want to know who Jesus is? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. That's the first of seven I am's in, in the Gospel of John. Now you can try to keep, keep track in the coming weeks here as we, as we go through this Gospel. I am the, the bread of life. What mattered was not what Jesus could do for them, but rather who Jesus was, and they needed to understand that. It's true for us today. It's not what he can do for us, but who he is in our lives. And once we understand who Jesus is in our lives, then look out. Things will happen in your world, but we have to first establish that we believe in the one that God sent, that we believe that he is the life support, the life source from heaven, the spiritual encounter, the spiritual food from heaven. This last scripture, I want you to see it. It's towards the end. This is 60 some verses. It says, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, Jesus said. And there's this continuous conversation. But look at this, which anyone may eat and not die. So this bread brings eternal life. He's not talking about He's not talking about unleavened bread or something we get at the bakery, right? I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Do you see it? Now, John doesn't have a, an institution of the Lord's Supper like the other Gospels give us, but this is pretty close right here. This language is pretty close. This bread, he is the bread of heaven sent from the Father. If you believe in him, if you eat of him, you will live. And he's saying, I will give for the life of the world this bread. The apostle Paul would write to the Corinthians, this cup is the new covenant. This bread is his body that was broken for you, the suffering Messiah in Isaiah. And this is what the first church believed. This is what we believe as we come to the table here in a moment, that this cup is the institution of a new covenant. And this bread was the brokenness that he received so that we could be healed by his stripes. The prophet said, you are healed. And Jesus received such brokenness on the way to the cross. It wasn't just a death sentence. It was an inconceivable beating. great suffering his blood his body I just want to close in prayer and then I want to give you some instructions this morning but I want you to see this there's almost a Passover theme today and, and if you if you need freedom 
If you feel like there's bondage in your life, if you feel like uh, you're being oppressed by something, you know, or someone, or something emotionally or physically, Jesus, I believe, just wanted to have Passover on the hillside with that large crowd. They weren't going to probably be together in, in Israel, who knows, or in Jerusalem, I should say, but there they are in the Galilee, and they're breaking bread. Jesus gave thanks, and he broke bread, it says. He broke these five loaves, and, and then they just multiplied like crazy. And that bread represents our freedom, our freedom from oppression. Uh, the, the cup that we receive today represents the, the blood of the Lamb who died so that we could live. Um, I love what we understand in healing and the blood of the, of, of, of the person and what the circulatory system does and how the cup today representing Christ's blood being shed for us, there's, there's wholeness in the bread and the, and, and the juice today. And this is a Passover picture and moment there in the Gospel of John. And I don't know what you need to pass over your life this morning, but when you come to the table, come expecting to receive from the bread of life who died on the cross for our sins to defeat evil, to defeat the evil works in our lives. He died on the cross to forgive us and to give us life here and later. His life flows from this memorial, from this encounter today. Passover. What needs to pass over your life today? How hungry are you today? What do you need that is only going to nourish you if it comes from heaven? The bread of heaven will meet us today. Please understand that this is more than a memory. This is an encounter with Jesus Christ who said, I am the bread of life. And he's here to give you not just a full belly, but something from heaven. Amen. Amen. Lord, we receive that today. And we thank you, Jesus, for this beautiful, beautiful teaching and this beautiful picture and these signs of feeding the multitude and overcoming nature and bringing peace to a, a troubled core of disciples on a raging, raging water. Jesus, we invite you into our storm today. We invite you to speak freedom over whatever bondage we're in and, and uh, for a death that's trying to penetrate our souls to pass over our condition as we place our faith in you today, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, check out our website at www.ridway.church.